1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode we'll take a look at how political identity has distorted our ability to understand world conflicts. We'll be asking whether a picture really can tell a thousand words and finally we'll be looking at what's behind the rise of witchcraft. First up, in his cover piece this week for the magazine, political scientist Yasha Munk has written about why identity politics has polarised our understanding of race and why the left has come to divide groups into oversimplified categories of the oppressors and the oppressed. Yasha joins me now to discuss his piece. So, Yasha, can you start by explaining a little more your thesis that you write about in this week's issue?
2: Yeah, um, you know, when we started seeing the terrible. Images of Hamas's attack on uh, Israel, which ended up killing 1,400 uh, people, uh, the biggest slaughter of uh, Jews since the Holocaust. Uh, you know, Many people were horrified um, and expressed their solidarity. Uh, but there was also a strange and persistent uh, part of the left uh, that celebrated Hamas and those many mainstream institutions that fell conspicuously silent. To understand that, I think we need to see it in the context of a broader ideology, of a new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation that have transformed uh, Western societies over the course of the last decades. Um, I write about these ideas in my new book, The Identity Trap, and I show uh, how they uh, end up backfiring, how even though they contain the lure of claiming that they're the most radical and consistent way of fighting against injustice. They actually uh, make it harder for our institutions to function They encourage children to conceive of themselves in identitarian terms that drive us towards zero-sum conflict. Uh, they actually end up empowering the very far-right ideologues that they claim to be taking on. Um, but more specifically in this context, they also make it harder for us to understand the world because they conceive of everything in terms of a group to which you belong and think about the moral status of that group, not depending on the morality of your particular actions, but rather sort of whether it is an oppressed group or not, it distorts reality in deep ways. And so for many leftists over the course of the last couple of weeks, all you need to know about the Israel-Palestine conflict is that Jews are white and Palestinians people of color, that Jews are colonizers and the Palestinians the colonized, that if you care about some leftist cause like the environment, you have an intersectional duty to stand with the victims of all other forms of oppression. And so you end up changing the, your view of the world to such an extent that this terrible terror attack looks like a glorious form of resistance that uh, you know anybody who cares about social justice should cheer on.
1: And, and you, as you say, you talk in your piece about this idea that Jews are seen as white, and therefore the oppressors. I mean, how do do you think Jews feel about that kind of definition of themselves given the Jewish history?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a huge uh, distortion of uh, the experiences of Ashkenazi Jews, of European Jews, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, the actress who now has a big perch in American media as one of the co-hosts of The View, one of the biggest uh, talk shows, um, claimed that the Holocaust was not about race because from her perspective, uh, Jews are white and the Nazis were white. So there's no racial difference between them. That is a sort of strangely neo-colonial imposition of American racial terms on the rest of the world. Because, of course, for the Nazis, Jews were very much a different race. And that is uh, uh, what motivated the Holocaust. Um, but this view is particularly strange when you apply it to Israel. Because at this point, Ashkenazi Jews are actually in a minority in Israel. There's a significant number of Jews who immigrated from Ethiopia and Eritrea who are black. There are, of course, a lot of uh, Arabs living as Israeli citizens, many of whom were murdered in this attack as well. And there's a plurality of people in Israel who are Mizrahi, who are the descendants of Middle Eastern Jews from Iran and Iraq and Syria and Morocco and other places, Uh, who were expelled in violent ways from those countries in the last 75 years, who had nowhere else to turn, who would not be welcome or safe to return today. And so to uh, either think of them as white when their skin tone is not notably different from that of Palestinians, um, or to say that they're colonizers in the kind of way in which Americans colonized the new world is simply a, a significant distortion of a much messier, more complicated reality on the ground.
1: And what role Asha, do you think the, the media plays in all this? You mentioned in your piece some of these New York Times articles that have been written by a freelancer who's also repeatedly praised Adolf Hitler. I mean, what? I mean, what role is the media playing? And and, and is it sort of perpetuating this idea of um, identity politics?
2: It, it, it does. I, I I think there's a sort of a few different factors going on here. One that. I find enraging, but it's sort of understandable and and, and one that is even worse than that. Um, Part of what has made newspapers so obtuse in the last two weeks is a recognition that the broader Israel-Palestine conflict is very complicated, right? And reasonable people can come to different conclusions about uh, why we are so far from having a peace deal at the moment. Um, Who was at fault and which historical episode and what turn and how all of those points add up to some kind of overall judgment in a simplistic way, right? But that's very hard to think about and and figure out. But many journalists have therefore been reluctant to speak with moral clarity about particular instances in this broader conflict. You can have conflicted feelings about the overall conflict and yet recognize that uh, Hamas, in a surprise attack after nearly 20 years in which Israel had uh, allowed the Gaza Strip to self-govern, to try and have economic development, murdering 1,400 civilians in an extremely brutal way, dismembering small children, uh, live streaming, the killing of elderly people to their relatives on Facebook, is horrendous and should be treated with uh, outrage. But I think uh, a lot of newspapers were very reluctant to foreground that suffering because they thought, oh, but what about all of the other things in the conflict? And that also, I think, helps to explain how the media could mess up quite so badly on the bombing, uh, the tragic bombing of that hospital in Gaza. Because they had sort of been forced to report on the horror of that terror attack, at least to some extent, just because of the gravity of it. And they, I think, were itching to say, well, let's prove that we're balanced again by sort of blaming Israel for something, by showing how bad what they are doing is as well, and then we'll end up looking more balanced. And so when Hamas sent a press release claiming that 500 people were uh, killed at that hospital by an Israeli strike, I think journalists, without meaning to be dishonest, thought, great, this is going to be an opportunity for us to prove that we're just as willing to be harsh on Israel. And then, of course, it turned out that there were not 500 people murdered or killed there, thankfully, as many fewer, uh, and that the rocket actually came from Palestinian Islamic Jihad, that it was a misfired Palestinian rocket rather than an Israeli attack.
1: And you you conclude your piece by saying that as this conflict continues, what what we really need is a willingness to recognize the messiness of the real world and that people can't be divided up into such simple black and white groups, as, as you say, how should we respond to, to what's going on? What What do you think is the kind of morally correct way of approaching these matters? Yeah,
2: um, George Orwell said that there's some uh, beliefs that are so stupid, but only very intelligent people can believe them. Um, I, I've been thinking in the last days, that there's some beliefs that are so stupid, that only people who are in the grips of a very highfalutin ideology can embrace them, right? Uh, We've seen academics, uh, writers, artists say things like the babies who were murdered by Hamas had it coming to them because they were settlers. Uh, There's no such thing as a civilian in Israel, and therefore we shouldn't mourn their deaths. I think that is that kind of inhumanity is a sign that you're in the grips of an ideology that claims to make the world a better place, but actually ends up justifying uh, extreme forms of violence. And so, uh, you know, a much more simple and straightforward view is that uh, uh, human beings matter, irrespective of a group of which they are a part. Um, That uh, uh, we can make uh, moral distinctions between the deliberate murder of civilians and people who are killed in an attack on military targets uh, that uh, tried their best to avoid civilian deaths, but that irrespective of that, we should mourn in the same way for every innocent victim uh, of of this terrible conflict and of war. That whatever the complicated set of views that you might have about uh, what got us to this point and what kind of response from Israel is now justified or is not justified. An ideology which dehumanizes people in such a way that because they're supposedly white, because they're supposedly settlers, because uh, they're supposedly guilty, you're allowed to do anything to them, forfeits any claim to moral superiority that it falsely makes.
1: Thank you, Yasha. Next... Can we ever trust photographs to paint a true picture of a story? The Israel-Palestine conflict has been one of the most documented so far, but how to know what is true and what's not? Joining me now to discuss is the journalist Brian Appleyard and Elliot Higgins, investigative journalist from Bellingcat. Brian, we've seen a lot in the media recently about photos which have been altered, but as you suggest in your art article this week for the magazine, this isn't necessarily a new thing. Can you start by explaining how so exactly?
3: Well, from almost the beginning, um, photos were manipulated. Um, Photos in the American Civil War manipulated to make the cannonballs better composed or the bodies better composed. Um, and, And it was just normal, because photographers... If you say, I'm an artist, not a photographer, it means you can... So all photographers want to be artists, so they, <laughs> they improve their pictures. But the point... Um, when, when they moved over from plates to film, the possibilities for manipulation increased a lot, um, because in the darkroom you can do all sorts of things to it. And th- at that point, it starts to get very it serious point about what of what the picture of? Is it real? And then when... Um, Digital photography came in, then all the brakes were off. You can uh, endlessly manipulate the uh, photographs. So, the initial idea with, with I, I mentioned two great photographers, Eugene, Eugene Atje and Julia Margaret Cameron, with them they said, This is what this looks like. Beyond that, though, you can't really claim that for the photographs we see now.
1: Hmm. And earlier, you during, for your work at Bellingcat, how are you approaching um, the conflict at the moment in, in Israel Palestine? I mean, how, how do you go about fact checking images?
0: Well, I mean, a, a, a big issue with the current conflict is um, usually when we're investigating conflicts and conflict incidents, it's it's something like chemical weapons attacks in Syria or the shooting down of MH17, where um, you have communities that kind of emerge from the event. With Israel and Palestine, you kind of have pre-existing communities who have very solid positions already, so they seek out information that reinforces their own biases. So, in terms of investigation, there's a lot more noise of fake images and false claims being shared compared to other similar events so a lot of it is really kind of reducing down you know what are the actual key sources that we're using what is the original content that we can find um and it's very typical and similar to our other investigation processes it's just we have to deal with a lot more noise this time
1: and what kind of approaches do you take i mean how do you go back to trying to find what is the kind of original source of an image
0: so um, sometimes it can be very difficult because with social media now, um, there's been a lot of moves to sites like Telegram, uh, closed social networks like WhatsApp, where the source of images isn't always completely clear. So we're also kind of trying to group images together into where which locations they originated from. So. The hospital bombing that happened this week that gained a lot of media attention is one where we've been collecting all that evidence, making sure it is from the same location by various analytical techniques like geolocation and chronolocation, and then trying to piece together a timeline of what happened. But... With many incidents it's often very hard to be 100% sure exactly what happened and when there's so much debate and accusations and people basically willing to share false information to support their own claims it can be very difficult to get to the truth.
1: Brian, do you think this is all quite a depressing situation for photojournalists who who will be out there reporting and and capturing what is in front of them only to find that their images are distorted i mean how 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 are they approaching this this war
3: um I, it's very very uh, serious situation i mean uh Rishi sunak just gave a speech saying how we're going to do great with ai and everything and it's a wonderful future for us you know but you know just saying well there's you know there's some off downsides to this well obviously there are huge downsides to this because as bellingcat has brilliantly shown the levels of distortion that can be put, put out by governments and companies and the rest of it are extraordinary, and what we need is a world belling cat, um, and a, or sort of a system whereby we can we can call these things out. In war, it's it's horrendously dangerous. I mean, I, I, I've just watched three interviews. I think it was three between with Hamas guerilla and and um, in each case, they flatly denied that the Palestinian invaders on October ninth had shot any any. Um, Civilians. I mean, just over and over again. You know, actually, all three interviewers were gobsmacked because it seemed almost incredible that they could do that. But you know, um, this—they do that because the more you produce alternative narratives, the more confusing it gets. And we've heard a lot of demonstrations who have bought that narrative that there was no such no such a murder. And uh, I, I don't really see how we're going to get out of this unless I say we have a.
1: A world cat or something no <laughs> we, we it's pretty fair to say we live in a time where photographs are still trusted um, perhaps more than than articles or other other kind of forms of media but do, do you think um, as brian says in his piece that we kind of need to move perhaps to an era where photos aren't trusted and and that would then mean that no photo can really be exploited what, what do you make of that argument
0: I mean, my fear is that we might be moving that way anyway, whether we like it or not, because um, we've seen in the past week attempts to dismiss evidence by using claims saying that, oh, it's AI generated, using very flimsy evidence. And for for one example, there was a photo that was shared by Israel that showed a um, burnt corpse of a child, which was a very disturbing photograph, and a um, Twitter user ran that through a of AI detection software that we've tested and has shown have a, has a very high error rate and it came out as being an AI-generated image and that was then used by people to basically deny that this image was real and my fear with AI is partly that what it'll allow people to do is just to dismiss evidence, photographic and video evidence by just saying, oh, well, that's generated by AI and then people can choose not to believe anything they don't want to believe and I, I find that very worrying.
1: Brian, what, what do you make of that? I mean, you, you obviously make the point in your piece that we might need to move to an era where we, we don't sort of take everything for granted when we see a photograph.
3: The problem is that, um, that we're in a, an accelerated technological race um, across the board. And um, interestingly, some, some of the big Silicon Valley giants said, oh, we want some legislation in this area. We've just got to stop AI doing any damage. Uh, which, after thinking about for a long time, I realised was fraudulent. Not that the, they, they were fraudulent, but they didn't intend to accept anything, because it's a, it's a war between very big companies indeed, and um, they'll want to do more and more of it, and uh, and as a, and they'll put infinite resources into it, um, where, where you know Elliot would, you know, would be pursuing this uh, this race. Um, for ever more clever um, distortions of reality. And, I, you know, unless there's, there's no way of stopping that. And so, um, unless you're a sort of expressive photographer, um, I'm, not, I'm not really a journalist photographer. I'm a, I take pictures of people I like when I do the stories. But um, unless you're that kind of photographer, okay, news photographers are inherently um, in trouble with this.
1: Brian and Elliot, thank you very much for joining. And finally, there's been a rise in paganism over the past few decades, and anyone interested can now start a degree in magic and occult science at Exeter University. Joining me to discuss is spectator writer, Andrew Watts, and PhD student at Oxford University, Lois Heslop. Andrew, you've written in the magazine this week about this new master's degree available at Exeter in magic and occult science. Can you tell us a bit about how you came across it and what and what you discovered when you looked into it more?
4: Well, I came across it at the same time as everyone else when there were a, a whole series of newspaper articles uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, of course was actually announced last year, but it was something that was only picked up uh, by the newspapers uh, just recently. And of course, it led to lots of headlines about you know a, a new Hogwarts, real-life Hogwarts in Exeter. And I thought it deserved a bit of investigation because so I, I live in the Southwest. And uh, well, I live in Cornwall and it's something that's always been bubbling around, witchcraft, the occult. And you see signs of it everywhere. When you visit a uh, stone circle somewhere, you, you might see offerings. Uh, and I just wanted to find out a bit more about it.
1: And you, you say in your piece that the degree itself doesn't seem to be that popular with Britain's growing magical community. Why, why do you think they're not so keen on the idea of a degree in the occult
4: Well, the person I spoke to said it was someone taking their secrets. Uh, They've they've always been very protective of this knowledge that's been passed down uh, through the generations, particularly through uh, initiation rites. You know, know, this knowledge is only passed down to people who've reached a certain level or or degree. And so they were just worried that it was being sent out uh, to anyone who who could pay the uh, fees for the university.
1: Liz, you've, you've written for The Spectator about the rise of witch talk, which is sort of witchcraft on TikTok. Can you tell us a bit about that as a trend and, and perhaps your own interest in the occult?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess my background is that I'm a nuclear fusion scientist, but also I spend a lot of my time in and around the Anglo-Catholic tradition and also I'm Jewish, so I've grown up with a lot of different religions and I find the occult quite interesting because I can see it as another variation of that, almost. I see the bells and smells and whistles, and I see similarities between that and and with the traditions we already see in mainstream religions. And I think my interest grew in it really through through lockdown. People, I think, were seeing this occult and this wicker and this mysticism as something, some escapism, and also a way to kind of connect, reconnect with the elements and reconnect with um, what they felt is sort of historic uh women's rights as well I guess one of the interesting things about witchcraft is if you look into the history it is just the persecution of women maybe maybe older women who have too many cats not sure but I find witchcraft and witch talk particularly interesting because uh it's also very commercial uh on witch talk most of it seemed to be lots of young girls practicing you know incense burning and and um and summer solstice preparations, but also quite a hard sell on products. And I wondered whether, uh, you can see them in benefiting in kind of Glastonbury in the southwest, as to whether those shops have done really well and whether there's a rise in occult tourism.
1: Hmm. Andy, that's something you talk about a bit—the the kind of commercialisation of of witchcraft, and I suppose that leads into the the, the idea of. This well, story. I had
4: to cut most of that actually. <laughs> Well, because a, f- a friend of mine went to the Museum of Witchcraft uh, and uh, picked up a charm, and uh, basically it was a penis, a small penis, and she said that since since she had that, uh, her her orgasms have been far more intense. That was something <laughs> that sub editor wouldn't let me get put through.
1: <laughs> I wonder why. Probably because it
4: does sound like <laughs> an advert for the Museum of Witchcraft in Boscastle.
1: <laughs> and in your piece, Andrew, you visit some of these places. You visit um, Zennor in, in in Cornwall. What what did you discover? And I mean, are you sort of convinced in the idea that, um, you know, the occult is, is, is real and witchcraft is something to be kind of taken seriously?
4: I'm not sure. The place I visited um, was uh, an old haunt of Alistair Crowley. And that, I couldn't see anything there. I took my dog along. Uh, my dog is very sensitive and he, he was just perfectly happy and, uh, you know, circling about smelling things. There are other places in Cornwall. Uh, when we were looking for a house, uh, there was one in the middle of some woods that I, I really liked. Uh, as I say, I'm not sensitive. My wife hated it, refused to buy it uh, because she, she was convinced that our son would um, would, would be drowned there. And we had, a novelist friend came and said, oh, no, you can't live here. It, Arthur will be taken by the Fae. She's very sensitive. And... Uh, so, we didn't buy that house. And it was only when talking to um the guy I met in Zeno that I found out that these woods were traditionally used for black masses, uh, and Crowley himself celebrated some sort of rituals there. And that might be the reason for it.
1: Lewis, what do you think it tells us about society that there has been this huge rise in in paganism and a kind of growing interest in in witchcraft?
5: It's interesting uh i think we we see that despite perhaps the uk becoming an increasingly secular society we see that people still have a need for religion and tradition and something to believe in and especially in in the last three years tumultuous times people have needed to have something to ground them um so i you know i find it's it's particularly interesting also because it, it seems to be growing up around uh nature and around not in big cities i haven't seen any witches really in in central London where I live, um, so I mean I guess it's interesting to see that maybe this kind of type of religion is taking hold in areas where people feel like it's more connected. If they're if they're going around and doing seances in the trees, perhaps they feel that's more connected to, than than trying to do the summer solstice in in Canary Wharf.
1: And and in your piece, you you finish with this meeting or a kind of um, show you have with Professor Brian. Rappert, can you tell us a bit about him and, and, and what, he, what he did with you?
4: Oh yeah, Professor Rappert's uh, very interesting because the course that he will be doing as part of the magic course is one that he's already been doing for sociology undergraduates and it's about the nature of deception uh, and he uses magic to illustrate the ways in which when we witness things we don't always realise what we're witnessing uh, and he was drawing parallels with uh, witnesses in court you know, under cross-examination, uh, witnesses can be attacked because they don't have perfect recall. I mean, none of us have perfect recall. We, our memories remember what we think we need to remember. Uh, and he, he's very interested in that, and that led to an interest in magic. And, and I called it a magic show. Basically, it was a seminar, uh, and it was a philosophy seminar, uh, about the nature of our memory and how we understand the world. And he used tricks. He didn't call them tricks. He called them effects to give an example of that and that I think is one example of, of how um, th- this course is, is actually going to be really interesting in, in sh- showing a, a new way of looking at the world or perhaps actually a very old way of looking at the world you know it's not just about you know witches and clairvoyance and so on.
1: Thank you Andrew and Lois and that's everything this week as ever if you've enjoyed the podcast do pick up a copy of the magazine you can read everything that we've discussed I'm Laura Prendergast and I hope you'll join us again next
0: week.